Now, if you'll turn with me to our scripture reading, Genesis 15, 1 through 21. And we'll read the same thing the kids just read. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, you, Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the na nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenzites, Catamites, Hittites, Perserites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jezebites. <laughs> the word of the Lord. Be to God, we don't have any more sights. <laughs> wow. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Our uh, small groups that are following the sermon series will be beginning actually today, I believe. Is that correct, Becky? And you're meeting at 1.30? Yeah. 1.30 with Zoom. So that's a change that you need to make note of. If you didn't get the sermon questions, you're in a small group, there are a set of questions on the table as you just come in. If you want to just get up and grab one right now, that would be totally fine. Um, but they're going to be following the sermon series here for the next 11 weeks until uh, Palm Sunday. 
and we look forward to God working together with us and building relationships. So, Abram, a man of great faith but messy mess-ups, as our uh, uh, children's ministry has termed it. Um, and he was promised a great progeny. He was promised that he would be the father of many nations. But at this point in the story, he still has no children. And as our children's ministry pointed out, he and Sarai were both getting on in years. And, of course, we hear from the Proverbs that uh, grandchildren are the crown of the aged and the glory of children is their fathers. And here all this time I thought it was they were the cause of gray hairs. And then Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of the warrior are the child, uh, children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his adversaries in the gate. Well, we love our grandchildren. We took them out to the snow for a snow day yesterday. Had a wonderful time. Uh, ten adults versus three grandchildren. It was almost an even match. Um, we, we kept them all safe and got them all home, and uh, it was a wonderful time. Uh, but I overheard this great little story my daughter was saying about being a parent. And she said, uh, being a parent is like going skydiving with a bunch of people who've never been skydiving before, and they don't know how to open their parachute. So on the way down, you have to go fly around without your chute open and open their parachutes for them so that they can safely land. And then when you run out of time and go splat on the ground, you don't die. You get up and make dinner. <laughs> I thought that was a good description of what, a, what the expectations of a mother really are. So in this story, which actually is Genesis 15, we skipped over Genesis 14. I needed to kind of touch on that. In Genesis 14, a lot goes on. Uh, um, much of it is not really germane to the story of Abram, so to speak, but there is this one interesting character of Melchizedek. Uh, quickly, the storyline is that Lot, along with the rest of Sodom, gets taken captive by uh, some other kings, and a battle ensues, and Abram joins the battle only in order to rescue Lot, but ends up uh, being the decisive factor in the victory of the king of Sodom and his allies to, against the other kings. And so uh, the king of Sodom offers him reward. He refuses, and he takes the tenth of his spoils instead and gives them to this priest, Melchizedek, uh, the king of Salem. Very interesting figure that's uh, mentioned again in Hebrews. Um, the point of it is, even in this, Abram was faithful to God, and he forsook a great reward that he was you know, pretty much entitled to in order to honor God and trust in the Lord instead. And that brings us to the beginning of this chapter where God says to Abram, do not fear Abram, for I am your shield and your very great reward. And I think it's really interesting that uh, God says, I am your reward. He doesn't say, I'm gonna give you a reward. I'm not gonna hand you a shield to protect yourself. He says, I am your reward. I am your shield. And I think that's really instructive for us to understand that God himself is the substance of our reward and our protection. Let's see here. I think I'm missing a page. In any case, I just kind of wanted to go over what happens here very quickly. Um, God says to Abram, fear not, I myself am your shield. The word here for shield is... Uh, cognate of Megan, which is the shield and the star of David. 
And so it's m not just merely the, the shield as a, a protection against uh, an attacker, but it's the standard, it's the, uh, the symbol and the seal of God's presence. And the reward is a word that is used many times in the Old Testament for the spoils of a conflict. And so the message I think here is, whatever things are going on in the earthly world, I'm still your first resource. I am still your first resort. I am your shield and I am your reward. If you're looking for rewards and protections in worldly things, those things will eventually fail you, but I will not fail you. So that's for the first lesson. And so he promises them, I will be your shield and your reward. But then Abram questions God. And God is speaking to him and he says, what good is success without a successor? You've given me no children. The heir of my estate will be this foreigner who's merely a servant in my household. And so the second promise that God gives is that it, you will have an heir of your own offspring. And he amplifies this with the picture. He says, behold, the stars of the sky. And have you ever looked up and, and tried to count the stars? It's virtually impossible because, for one thing, they twinkle. That makes them really hard to count. But there are just too many of them. And God says, this will be your offspring. This will be your heritage. And the third promise that God then gives is, I will give you the land of your adversaries. And then again, Abram questions, how can I know? And then God then joins Abraham in this covenant. A little bit of background on the covenant activity here is that the words that are used in the Hebrew, God cut a covenant with Abram. Not made, not wrote, not signed, but cut a covenant. And in this ancient Near East tradition, the way that it worked was that you would take these animals of sacrifice and, and, and divide them in two over a little bit of a ravine, and the blood would run down the ravine from these animals that had been sacrificed. And the parties of the covenant would then walk through the mess, the entrails, and the blood in order to say to each other, so be it to me if I fail to keep my promises to you. And so God is saying this to Abram, so be it to me if I fail to keep my promises to you. And what's interesting also about this is that in the form of the covenant here, God is the one who passes through uh, the blood. He's the one who passes through the divided entrails and carcasses. It is a unilateral, unconditional guarantee by God. Abram is asleep. He's watching in a dream, in a vision. And then God says all this other stuff about the uh, things that are going to happen later. I'll touch on that in just a minute. Um, but I think it's really important to understand here that God is not asking Abram to come to terms. He's saying, I will do this. I myself make this promise to you. It is unilateral and unconditional. And that's important because it tells us that God's promises don't depend on us holding up our end of the bargain, so to speak. He's bound by his own character and his promise. God is faithful, and his faithfulness is greater than our faithlessness. And all of his promises depend only on his faithfulness, not on our performance, not on our faithfulness, not even on our faith. Although we need to move in faith in order to take advantage of the promise that God is offering. And now this last little bit where he says, um, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there 
But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Well, thank you, God, for that. Appreciate that part. But what this teaches us is really important, and that is that God's, two things, God's promises have a much greater range than the thing that we're worried about. What was Abraham worried about? He had one thing in mind, an heir. He wanted a son, okay? And we'll see in a little bit here how his desire to engage that part of the promise led him astray with Hagar, but the reality is that that was his focus. I don't have an heir. What good is success without a successor? But God's promise to Abram has to do with the nations and the world and with the whole plan of salvation. And hundreds of years into the future of what's going to happen, it's, it's fabulous to see the reality that God's promises are always bigger than the thing that we think we got to have right now. And they take longer. 400 years, that's a long time. You want to wait 400 years for God's promise? No, we don't. We're not. We're, we're very impatient. We want it now. We want it for ourselves. But there's another lesson here, and this is a little bit harder lesson, and that is that God's promises often don't come without some setbacks and without some problems. And there are a lot of things that happened on the way to Egypt. There are a lot of things that happened even on the way uh, to Isaac. And the reality is that God's purposes will not be thwarted by our mistakes, by our missteps, or by our miscalculations or misunderstandings. That's a really important thing to understand. God's view and God's promise and God's interpretation of how things are going to go goes way beyond our immediate reality. So it's really important for us to see that. Okay, so what are the takeaways from this? First is that God himself is the substance of the promise. And he is our shield, our very great reward. And our desire should be for God, for God's sake. We hold to God's promises often for protection, for provision, for the things that we want, the things that we think that we need. And these are not wrong. I mean, what do we pray for? We pray for uh, avoidance of conflict, resolution of conflict. We, pray for wellness and healing, the avoidance of sickness. We pray for our loved ones and, and their success. These are good things to pray for. They're important things to pray for. But do we pray for God's presence? We pray, Lord, we want to know you better. We want to be closer to you. We want to present and represent your presence in the world because your presence is with us. So I think it's as important for us to desire God for God's own self as it is to desire God for the things that we hope that God will bring. And that's, that's a tough one because, um, like Abram, our focus is on the little things, not little, but the immediate things, I should say, that are in front of us, our desires. Second takeaway, Abram believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. And that's really important. That's a, a, a message we hear in the New Testament a few times that uh, it's not about our faithfulness but faith it's the fact that we decide to put our trust in God and that is the substance of our righteousness the degree by which God's righteousness then becomes our own um, but Abram also questioned God and you got to wonder 
Abram had some uncertainties, maybe even some doubts. Did he have unbelief and disobedience? Well, we'll see that he actually indeed did. But the important thing to learn from this little um, episode with Abram and God is that doubt and faith are not opposites. We often think that if you are doubting God, if you have questions or uncertainties, that you must not be faithful. And the reality is that they're complements, not opposites. Just as there is no courage apart from real fear, there is no faith apart from some degree of uncertainty. If we were certain, it wouldn't be faith, it would be knowledge, it would be sight. God asks us to take a leap of faith, but never a leap of faith that is blind. It's always based on what God is already doing around us. And this teaches us another lesson, and that is that the right way to doubt always leads to greater faith and maybe a willingness to risk because God's promises are faithful. Okay, third one. God's promises work for us and through us, but also encompass nations, lands, peoples, dynasties, covering generations, continents, and centuries. If we focus too closely on ourselves and our immediate desires, we're going to miss most of what God is doing. As he told Abram, count the stars. You are but one of those. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. God's promises also encompass hardship, setbacks, detours, and delays, even losses. In that greater expanse of what God is accomplishing, not only on our behalf, but on the behalf of all humanity, God will redeem eternally everything that we see as evil temporarily. Hugely important. Evil is real. The mistakes we make have real consequences. But notice this strange little line here at the end that says that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. What does that mean? I think what it means is that God was making space for these people whose behavior was abominable in God's sight. And he's saying, they're going to go one way or the other, but I've got to give them freedom to either repent or not. Remember Jonah? What happened with Jonah? He went to Nineveh, and Nineveh deserved judgment. Jonah knew it. But he suspected that God was going to call Nineveh to repentance, and that if they repented, then Nineveh would not get the punishment that Jonah so earnestly knew that they deserved. And that's exactly how it turned out. And what was Jonah's response? He was angry, and he pouted under a tree. And, and that's the way that we can sometimes react when we're seeing God be forbearing with people that we don't think deserve it. And yet the Amorites did come to the completion of that iniquity and were judged, and the land was given over. But the message here is that there's more going on. There's a lot more players in this play, and God has interests that go beyond even our well-being and sometimes extend to people who we think don't deserve God's favor or forbearance. And we don't know how it's going to turn out, but our job is to be faithful to what God is doing. That brings us to the last point, and that is that God's promises don't depend on our faith, but God's faithfulness. And that means that our mistakes and missteps and misunderstandings will never thwart God's greater purpose. I don't know about you, but to me that's a comfort because I can mess up. I bet sometimes even you all mess up, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. right? 
Isn't it good to know that God's purposes are greater and his provisions go beyond our mistakes? We can trust and obey and we leave it up to God. I remember a story one time there was a youth ministry um, convention going on and they had these several youth ministers from the Bay Area who were being featured because they had very successful youth ministries that were booming and the interviewers were asking them all these questions about what youth ministry is and what it's all about. The very end they had them all lined up, five of them on these director chairs and said, so what, what is success in youth ministries? And the first one said, oh that's easy, it's numbers, it's all about the numbers, more kids, more success. And the other one's at the end going, he just said that? You can't say that. Everybody thinks that. You can't say that. <laughs> and they went down the line about you want your kids to know the Lord and know the word and all that. And it was a really good answer. And they got to the five, fifth guy, and he was this um, kind of, uh, I don't know, interesting-looking character who had kind of a snarky, smirky smile and crazy hair. And uh, he was about a foot shorter than all the rest of them, didn't look athletic or anything like that. And he says, success scares the hell out of me. The whole idea of how to be successful in ministry just, just make, makes me quiver. And I thought, wow, what an answer. Because honestly, people who are in ministry, sometimes we do. We have this anxiety over, are we getting in the way of what God is trying to do? And he said, oh, I don't know what success looks like. I just want these kids to know that they have a savior and it's not me. I figure if I can be faithful, God can be successful. I learned a lot from that statement. If we can just stick to trusting God and obeying the thing in front of us, God will be successful in God's own time. And only God can conquer sin and change hearts anyway. You know that? We can't do it. No pastor ever saved anybody, right James? It's only God who saves. It's only God who changes hearts. It's only God who brings redemption. God's promises go beyond us and our scope. They're unilateral and unconditional. It's faith beyond reckoning, beyond any way for us to encompass or, or get our arms around all that God is doing. So my encouragement today is as you think about what God is doing, look up at the stars count them if you're able and realize that what God is doing in us and for us and through us and around us is so much bigger and greater and grander than the things that we pray for. Things we pray for are important. They're good. I'm not knocking any of that. I pray for the same things. But in the course of that, remember that what God is doing is bigger than all of us put together and then some. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that your success does not depend on us. We're thankful that what you're doing is bigger than what we can see. It'd be kind of disappointing otherwise. We're thankful, Lord, that you're the one who changes hearts and brings salvation. We thank you, Lord, that it is your glory and your purpose that will prevail. So we ask God that you would open our eyes both to the small things you're doing right here in the midst of our lives and our livelihood and the larger, greater things that you're doing all around us of which you invite us to become a part. And we thank you, God, that you do call us to be part of what you're doing. 
You don't need us. You could do it all without us. But you're so pleased to use us. What a privilege. And thank you, God, that it's really all about bringing people in to your presence. For you, Lord, yourself are the substance of the promise. You are the reality of all we pray for. So we pray that we will love and seek you for yourself more than anything else that you give or do. And if that is a statement that rings a little in your heart for something greater than just yourself, if hearing God's call to you is something that is causing you to move inside, think about this. Because the promise depends on God's faithfulness and not on us, all we have to do to respond is say, yes, Lord, I'll trust in you. I'll believe you, God. And then God credits that to us as righteousness. And then the things that we begin to do and work out and walk out in our obedience become sanctified and perfected by God bit by bit. That's called sanctification. And we grow up somehow by God's grace into the measure of the fullness and stature of Jesus Christ, which is an amazing miracle. If you're at that place and this is that time, simply pray this, Lord, I believe you. I trust in you. I seek your righteousness as a gift that I may walk with you and know you and be known by you. Let my life then, Lord, become an offering and a blessing in the greater things that you're already doing all around me. This, in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.